ESPN LA 710. Welcome to The Experience here on ESPN LA 710. I'm Laferne Cusack. For more information, please log on to ESPNLA.com and go to The Experience page and download podcasts or check me out on Twitter at Laferne Cusack. Did you know seizures come from the brain and any brain can have a seizure? So everyone needs to know about seizure first aid. There are so many types of seizures that look very different. And most seizure disorders are also known as epilepsy. What is epilepsy? A brain disorder or a disease? Today, we're talking epilepsy with Susan Peach Escueta. She's executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation, Greater Los Angeles. Dr. Jignasa Patel, neurologist and epilepsy expert, assistant professor of neurology at Loma Linda University, Nathan Jones, project director at the Epilepsy Foundation and former athlete who has epilepsy, and Dr. Antonio Delgata Escueta, professor of neurology at UCLA, co-director of the Epilepsy Center for Excellence and the VA Medical Center in West Los Angeles. Thank you guys so much for joining me on uh, my show today. Susan, tell us about the organization Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Los Angeles. The Epilepsy Foundation um, exists to help families uh, and individuals living with epilepsy. Um, We've been in existence for over 50 years now, and we are here to help give people with epilepsy a voice and help them in their fight both individually and as a community to end epilepsy. And Dr. Patel, what exactly is epilepsy? Epilepsy is um, is a condition in which uh, an individual is prone to having seizures. A seizure is an event uh, that occurs where there's an abnormal uh, firing of brain activity and abnormal electrical discharge that results in impairment in the individual, typically for a short period of, of, in time, uh, which leads the person to have what is seen on the outside as a seizure. There's a great lack of epilepsy awareness. Susan, talk about what you guys are doing to get more awareness out there about epilepsy and how it's affecting our community. Yes, epilepsy is much more common than your listeners probably realize. One in 26 people will be diagnosed with epilepsy during their lifetime, but we like to remind everyone that 26 in 26 people can make a difference and be part of the fight to end epilepsy. So we are always encouraging people to share their stories because stories are what make the complicated epilepsies more understandable and rally people to become part of this cause. Uh, We had a big walk to end epilepsy on November 6th, and that happens every year. And we also have a care and cure event that helps uh, support the training of more epilepsy specialists in our region. Nathan, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. As a project director and someone that 
currently has epilepsy. Talk about how you make an impact at this organization. Well, it's great to work with. Uh, we have a wonderful staff there. And uh, like you said, it's someone with epilepsy, working with people in, in our community with epilepsy, going through a, a difficult time, whether it's just getting a diagnosis. It's great just to work more specifically. I work with our team captains for our annual walk to epilepsy at the Rose Bowl every year. And I get to talk to them and, and just reach out and be a point of contact for enabling and empowering them to share their story, which can be kind of difficult to do at the first because there's such a stigma. And we just empower people to give the tools and resources they need to to share that story and build their teams. And it's just amazing when they show up at the Rose Bowl with, you know, 4,000 other plus other people there in a world where it's otherwise very isolated. So it's, so it's very powerful and I'm, I'm happy to get to, and I love doing what I do. Susan talked about stories. How did you find out as a former athlete how you had epilepsy? That was actually in high school. Um, I, I was a football player, and uh, as a football player in high school, um, and I later, later played at the Ohio University, the Bobcats, but in high school, I... I had to. I remember waking up at six o'clock in the morning. I had a job. I had to clean the gym. So, um, you know, presumably I was really dehydrated, stressed, sleep deprived, and I was on the front porch of my house. I was in Kentucky, and I just blacked out. I went blank a few hours later. Um, I just woke up in the hospital, and that was that. And so that was an isolated incident. We didn't know if. Uh, it would happen again, and sure enough, just not even a couple of weeks later, I had another seizure, and you know I was put on medicine, and it's been it's been kind of a a journey since then. It has led to several years later out here in uh, California working at the Epilepsy Foundation. And Doctor Delgado Escuata, does that sound familiar to you? Indeed, that is not an unusual story. Fatigue, sleep deprivation, maybe even dehydration triggers the uh, underlying uh, predisposition that uh, an individual has before the tonic-clonic grammar convulsion is then expressed. Um, this is not an unusual story in the civilian population as well in our returning soldiers from Afghanistan and Iraq. They have no history, never have seizures, and then the young man is 18, 19 years old, is exposed to the rigors of boot camp, trauma of... Uh, combat, maybe a detonation blast, traumatic brain injury, or an impact direct close head trauma. And these things all work together to produce the clinical epilepsy the patient has. Of course, in the civilian population today, what gets our attention is the football player that has no history of seizures, and they're exposed to the impact close head trauma of playing football. There are very many similarities between the lives our citizens have, whether they're civilians or soldiers. Yeah. For me, being ignorant about epilepsy, it is not something that you're born with. Now, you, you need to go and get rid of, of that ignorance. because Yeah, that's why you guys are here. Today, that, yeah, <laughs> you know, today, many of us go to... Uh, have our uh, ancestral origin. You know, origin. Uh, we pay $99 now to go and get our genes so that we can find out about our ancestral origin. So there is a sea change in the concepts we have in general, and it's true in, ep- in medicine too. We have precision medicine today. So nowadays, um, with the whole genome, whole exome sequencing, we're finding out more than 50% of all epilepsies are in fact due to a predisposition. 
After all, remember, we're all related. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. So it's not surprising that most diseases, including cancer, and for that matter, epilepsy, have some predisposition. So in the patients that we see in civilian as well as the soldiers coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, it's very clear what uh, the whole genome, whole exome sequencing has uh, changed the way we think about diseases. It's true for epilepsy as well. We like to think that there's a two-hit mechanism and somebody has traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic epilepsy. Not everybody that gets head trauma develops epilepsy, only 50%. You've got to ask how did the other develop the epilepsy because they're predisposed. Nathan, did you have a head injury prior to your episode? Do I call it episodes? That's all, okay. yeah. I mean, I that's fair. You know, I played football and I had, um, you know, one could argue I may have had a concussion, you know, whether it was several weeks before or, you know, every every Friday night for that matter. And yeah, I, I remember particularly that Friday night before there were some hard hits, but it's not, it, it wasn't just that. And, and later it proved that I had a right, a scar on the right side of my brain. We don't know what that was from. It, it wasn't pointed, it wasn't necessarily from that concussion, mm-hmm. but it, uh, so with no history of that. And then again, you have to look at the other factors of you know, being on two hours of sleep, dehydrated, and then um, just otherwise a perfectly healthy 18-year-old male. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a hell of an experience to just randomly wake up in the hospital after that. So You're in the twilight zone, um, I can imagine. Yeah, the twilight. Yeah, I mean, mean, pretty much you're just, you know, to wake up under a bunch of fluorescent lights (laughs) with IVs in your arms. Yeah, it's a heck of an experience. And then to go back to school the next day and um, just kind of have to recount that to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily, I was 18 years old. I had a circle of friends. I had a really good support group. And, you know, one of the things I enjoyed doing uh, today is, you know, talking to those kids that are 12 and 13. It's a little more hard for them. They're just establishing sort of their social lives and whatnot. And right. It can be really intimidating to have a seizure in front of their classmates. Yeah. And, uh, and it can be intimidating. And people don't know still to this day why we, are, we we have seizures and there's no cure. And that can be really, and what people don't know, they fear mm-hmm. often. So that kind of leads down this whole conversation of stigma and whatnot and, uh, and bullying. So I think it's important, if I may interrupt here, that your audience understand that any brain can have a seizure. Um, one in 10 people will have a seizure in their lifetime, uh, but that doesn't mean they'll go on to be diagnosed with epilepsy. But seizures, um, any brain can have a seizure. So caring for the brain and protecting the brain is very uh, very important. Susan makes a great point that, you know, traumatic brain injury is one that we're, uh, we often think about um, when someone develops epilepsy, but there are other factors that what I like to think of as extrinsic, you know, besides your own genetics and um, including things like getting infections in the brain or um, I take care of a lot of elderly patients and so we often see patients who have had um, a stroke as their risk factor for developing seizures and epilepsy later in life. Dr. Patel, I I know that Dr. Delgado Escueta, he talked about veterans and you're very passionate about veterans as well and you work with them. Can you talk about the different types 
of seizures and epilepsies? In gen- general, the same types of seizures are possible um, in veterans. Uh, predominantly, we see more people uh, in the veteran community who have suffered a traumatic brain injury than you would say in the average population. So uh, the types of traumatic brain injury that a veteran might be exposed to, uh, let's say if they're exposed to a blast, that's something that's under investigation heavily at this point in time, the type of injury the brain um, sustains in that type of um, hit, so to speak, it can be different than if somebody bumps their head in a car accident, et cetera. So these are areas that we're really still trying to understand better. In terms of the manifestation of the actual type of seizure that the patient has, it really is similar to somebody who has a traumatic brain injury from a car accident, et cetera. So there are two basic general types of seizures, um, ones that start in a certain area of the brain called a focal seizure and one that starts in the whole brain at the same time called a generalized seizure. Um, and depending on where it starts, there uh, are different manifestations that someone who is observing the seizure might see or the person experience. So the types are still the same in terms of experience, but what the mechanism and what the brain is exposed to uh, for somebody who suffered a traumatic brain injury in the military might be a little bit different than someone who has a similar traumatic brain injury um, as a civilian. And I remember like growing up that there was this young lady in, in school, in elementary school, she suffered from seizures. And uh, our teachers, they were trying to prepare us if something happened to her. And it was more um, like Nada was saying, it was like, wait, oh, man, what's going on, you know, and we should be afraid. Susan, can you talk about what you do to help teach our community about what happens in case of a seizure and what we should do? I'm so glad you asked. And as one example, we have a big brain exhibit that we take into schools to help um, let children of all ages know how important their brains are and that they will only ever get one brain and all the things the brain does for them. And that's why it's so important that they take care of it. And we teach them that no matter what age they are, whether kindergarten or sixth grade, they can obviously wear, wear a helmet when they need to to protect their brain. Um, eating healthy is good for the brain. Drinking fluid, getting good sleep, which we've already mentioned. Um, all these things are very important for caring for the brain. And then we also teach them that anyone with a brain can get a seizure, which I mentioned before. And that's why it's so important for everyone to know first aid for seizures. And the most obvious uh, is the convulsive seizure that people notice. And those are the kinds of seizures that people often think of when they hear about epilepsy. So the convulsive seizure does require first aid. And we teach the five S of seizure first aid. Basically, of course, you stop to help the person. You want to turn them on their side. You put something soft under their head. Does it matter what side you turn them on? No. You turn them on the side, either side. You put something soft under their head, and you stay with them and make sure they're safe. So I'll just repeat. You stop to help. Turn them on their side. Put something soft under their head. Stay with them and make sure they're safe. 
but you also brought up that and I'll just also add that if the if the seizure does continue most likely they stop in a in a few minutes but if the seizure does go on beyond 5 minutes you would want to call 911 and and um so that the emergency responders can assist them and you also brought up about in schools and teachers helping other students and this is very important and we do a lot of education in schools um to also inform teachers that a simple staring spell which Dr. Patel can speak more about those can also be seizures and those can happen 20 to 200 times a day and during those momentary absence or absence seizures the student is not learning and there's not like an emergency response to that but the teachers need to know to repeat what they have just said to the classroom because that student won't have heard it um so it's really important for schools to be educated about the different types of epilepsies because there is misdiagnosis there's undiagnosis <laughs> you know there's so many of our students are you know misdiagnosed with other things when really it could be absence epilepsy just can also add because you asked a great question about helping people not to be helping students not to be scared and we think that inf- information correct information is the best antidote to um fear yeah. and <laughs> that's what i've been so preaching for the, the past 2 the, weeks more students know what to expect and don't see it as being something scary or frightening that's the best way mm-hmm. and nathan as a, a former football player talk about how you were able to calm your friends down am i saying that right or educate them in a way that you know they should not be afraid of something if you had a epileptic seizure oh yeah that was really important for me to do that and i tell you what it saved my life so um you know After I started having seizures, I just one of the things I'm glad I did is I wasn't uh, afraid to bring it up and tell my friends um what to do when I had a seizure, which um to a large part it wasn't our the wonderful 5S is at that point. I was just 18-year-old, you know, 18, 20-year-old kid in the Midwest at that point and it was so all my friends they knew me we spent so much time together with my teammates. You know, when you're at football camp you're doing two a day. <laughs> yeah. Um I never had a seizure in front of them. But um it was such a big part of sort of my story, you know, from 18 years old on. You know, for example, I wanted to be a pilot, um which led me to going to Ohio University, right? Mhm. So when I'm with my friends at football camp, that kind of would naturally come up in conversation and then it led to me saying, "Well, I couldn't um ultimately do that cuz, you know, I was diagnosed with epilepsy." And then it became the what's epilepsy thing and i would explain to them that i have seizures and uh you know i just learned that people are so willing to open and listen if you can just you know confidently convey and just talk openly with your friends um and i think we all know that and um you know one day it really saved my life i was driving actually um my red shirt freshman year back from miami of ohio we uh had an away game and i was in the car with three of my teammates and um i was actually i was actually the one driving back and um 
on a suspended license, no less. I'll, I'll have to <laughs> full just put that in there, right? <clears throat> yeah, and it was really bad. I mean, I could have really hurt or killed somebody or myself, and I, but it's just the truth. I was driving on a suspended license, and um, I uh, ultimately had I had a seizure driving back. And if my if I hadn't told my friends of my history of epilepsy, what to do if I have a seizure. They wouldn't have been able to act, react so quickly, get the car neutral. They got me to the side of the road, and uh, it was that's a really great effort. I mean, that, that's that's one example. I mean, I'm thankful to just opening up to people about um, having epilepsy, you know, not being ashamed for one second, rather, and just empowering myself to educate others, um, you know, yes. around me. And that's why a large part I do what I do, I do my work at the Epilepsy Foundation. It's kind of, it's almost um, survival. Mm-hmm. Like I'm surviving on our public's knowledge of if I was walking down the street or one day I have a seizure, I'm, I'm reliant on, you know, our public, strangers, people I don't know, to react to the situation. You know, if I happen to be, let's say, near the road, with somebody can can they stop, put me on my side, and you know, at least pull me back from the road, or if I'm near something dangerous, a sharp object, mm-hmm. um, instead of just reacting so frighteningly to to a seizure because they haven't seen it. So, right. Right. Um, it, it, it's very important to share your story, and that's how I would share my story with my teammates um, and my coaches. You know, on and off the football field. And uh, as you know, you know this is ESPN and teams. There's nothing stronger than a tight team, and communication is everything. And uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I was happy to share with my teammates. And Dr. Delgado Escueta, can you talk about how you prepare your patients that come in with uh, and that are diagnosed with epilepsy? How you prepare them to take on their day? Wow, it's a big order. <laughs> Each individual is different, so depending on the age, the sex, and what they do in life, driving is a very important part of everybody's life. So I think it's important that uh, that gets into the issue of being honest with your physician. I think it's important for them to discuss when they can drive, when they shouldn't drive, uh, and uh, what kind of profession they have. Often in the young people, you have to discuss with them what they're involved in. Like in this case, um, are they allowed to play football? Well, uh, we usually say they can play football. Can they play basketball? We even allow them to scuba dive. (laughs) So today we are a lot more liberal in terms of what we uh, agree that patients can do. Uh, Certainly, you have to be careful about skydiving, uh, parachuting, uh, but most other activities, and then, of course, there's the profession. It's very difficult, as um, you already heard. The rules are very strict about being a pilot. But there are forms of epilepsy where actually appear at the age of 16 or 17, and uh, and they can actually be given a license to be a pilot if they have had, uh, when their age is past, when the seizures go away and remit. But most other professions, you know, I have not only neurosurgeons and uh, cardiologists and lawyers, CIA or uh, police uh, detectives. So really epilepsy no longer stops most individuals from pursuing their professions. Then, of course, there's the issue of 
females, uh, women, and uh, they have their issue of their reproductive rights and what they can do uh, in terms of having babies. So it's important to discuss the adverse effects of the medication and what it does to pregnancy and um, exposure of the baby to anti-epileptic drugs. All those things we discuss with, with, as I said, each individual is different. Right. And each individual has different ambitions in life, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not a one fit all approach. You have to take the whole person in, which right. I, I love. And I and I'm saying this like I know, you know, we talk about we're talking about epilepsy. My mother, she had Parkinson's and her care. It was like a one fits all approach, which I was like sitting here. She was in Colorado. I was sitting here in California going, yeah ask this question, ask this question. You have to take your own health into your own hands and ask these questions and not have a blanket approach to everyone that has, you know, epilepsy or whatever you may have. Dr. Patel, okay, first of all, I'm, I'm going to throw this out here because I don't want to forget. How can you get a infection on your brain, first of all, and then Second of all, let's talk about the treatments. Sure. Um, So I'll answer the infection question first. Um, You know, uh, you might have heard of something called meningitis. Uh, That's an infection on the coverings of the brain. Um, Sometimes it's caused by a virus. Sometimes it's from a bacteria. Um, It usually gets there through your bloodstream, um, and depending on what the bug is uh, that is actually causing the infection, and certain conditions make someone more prone to having an infection in the brain. So you can also get an infection in the brain itself, not just the coverings, and that's called an encephalitis. Um, And so there are, just like you get an infection in your respiratory system or in your GI tract, the brain also can, of course, um, thank goodness Mother, Mother Nature has made our brains um, less susceptible to having an infection um, because we are quite protected um, with something called the blood-brain barrier. Um, however, in certain instances, uh, the bugs are able to infect our brains as well. So it's definitely not something we see commonly, but we should be aware of this, um, especially for those of us that are treating epilepsy because that can be a risk factor for developing seizures. Okay, so how, um, so how do we not get how do we not get it? How do we take care of ourselves and never I get think, it? Right. That's, that's a great question. Just normal things that we do, you know, uh, in terms of protecting, our, protecting ourselves, like in the healthcare industry, we are always careful about washing our hands. Um, you know, meningitis is something that we get concerned about in young people, especially college-age kids that share drinks. Uh, so you might have seen the commercials on television um, about some of the vaccines that are available for that condition. So just common sense things, washing hands, uh, staying away from people that have uh, might be a sick contact, you know, if they have colds and things like that. So just like any other infection, that's how you get exposed to something that might potentially cause an infection in the brain. Of course, there are more rare things that can happen as well. But for, for most of us, common sense things, staying away, covering your mouth when you're coughing so you don't infect someone else. Um, and again, these are really rare compared to your common cold or anything like that. So, And then as far as the treatments for epilepsy, talk about that and mm-hmm. the dietary therapies and maybe surgeries as well. Sure, yeah. So there's three main things. Um, the first is whether, uh, you know, seizure medicine is indicated or not. So 
in some individuals, they might just have one seizure in their lifetime and they might not necessarily have another. So there is a set of tests that your neurologist, typically sometimes you're a primary care physician if you see them first, might order after somebody has their first seizure. And depending on the set of circumstances that led to the seizure, we determine whether it is something that might make the person prone to having more or having epilepsy or whether it was caused by a different factor. Sometimes there's medications that can make you prone to have one. So if that was the case, you wouldn't necessarily need treatment for epilepsy. Um, So if it is determined that you are at risk or you are diagnosed with epilepsy, the main treatment is medication. Okay, At this point in time, we're really um, at a point where there are many new therapies that are coming out. Um, In the last few years, we've had several new medications come out that are better in terms of the side effects. So we've had medication for seizures for many decades. and the older medicines were really effective. However, sometimes they gave side effects like people feeling groggy or, or feeling dizzy on them. And so the newer medicines are a, a bit better about these, um, uh, these side effects. So about two-thirds of people are going to be well-controlled with medication. So that's, the indica- that's usually enough for, for uh, those people. Unfortunately, there is about a quarter to a third of people that medicine is not enough. And when that's the case, um, typically you are going to be seen by an epilepsy specialist, um, a neurologist obviously who specializes in epilepsy, and they will run additional tests and see whether you would be someone who uh, would benefit from more aggressive therapy such as epilepsy surgery. There's different types, um, whether it's actual brain surgery or we have a couple of actually devices that can be implanted, one called the vagus nerve stimulator and the other, the responsive neurostimulator, um, that can actually benefit patients that are having repeated seizures d- despite trials of medication. Um, the, the issue, the third category, so to speak, of um, therapy would be uh, diet, which you mentioned, Lafern. Um, typically for adults, it's not an option um, that we use that frequently. Um, uh, it's more often that the dietary therapy, uh, like the modified Atkins diet or the ketogenic diet, uh, they're very specific diet regimens um, that can be started usually in young children uh, for the very refractory epilepsy. So we do know that some adult patients also benefit, but the diets are usually pretty strict, um, and so it requires a lot of discipline um, on the part of the parents for the child or for the patient themselves if they are the ones that have epilepsy. So those are the three main uh, areas of therapy for the condition. So what's the difference between... But it should be noted that there are some kinds of Mm -hmm. epilepsy for which the dietary therapies are uh, uh, the first line of treatment. Yes, sorry, Susan. Yes, that's that's the. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, if an athlete gets hit in the head, has a concussion, and they may have a seizure as well, what's the difference between the concussion and a seizure? And what? Yeah, I, 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 I'm just trying to see: is there a connection to both of them? Like, if you have a concussion, will you get a seizure? So uh, I would think of it as in a broader character, uh, broader category as the brain is suffering an injury, right? So the concussion uh, can lead to someone having things like headaches or feeling nauseous, not feeling right, having trouble with their balance for some period of time after they hit their head. 
Uh, a seizure can be one of the symptoms that happens after an injury to the head, just like the others I mentioned. Okay. So when you have a seizure at the time of the injury, it's what we call uh, an, an acute seizure or symptomatic seizure at the moment that the, the injury happens. Now, not everyone, and thankfully most people who have an injury, like an athlete, let's say on the football field, happens to have a, a, a bad blow, um, you know, during a tackle, happens to have a seizure, most of the time that individual is not going to go on to develop epilepsy in their life. It's, that's the symptom of that injury at that moment. So um, about 15 to 30% of people, however, in that category who had a seizure early on after the injury will go on to have more seizures and then be diagnosed with epilepsy. So they are connected in the sense that the brain is having, is has a, had an injury when you have a concussion um, uh, and that led either to symptoms including a seizure or headaches, et cetera. And Susan, I mean, at being the executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Los Angeles, I mean, my head is spinning right now. How do you take in all of this information and then, you know, educate our community that makes a positive impact? Because there's just so much. You you hit the nail on the head. It is so much. Uh, epilepsy is uh, complex. I often tell people it's it's somewhat like cancer in that way. You speak of cancer as being the, in the singular, and you speak of epilepsy as though it's singular. No, it, it's the cancers and it's the epilepsies. There are many kinds of epilepsies. There are many causes and many different treatment options. So it is often overwhelming to individuals and families uh, to when they hear all this information. And then when you add to it that there's also death in epilepsy and other things like that, it, it certainly is overwhelming. And there's a spectrum of epilepsies from Tonia spoke to adults with epilepsy who can live full and lives and live their dreams. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's children I know who who can't speak or talk or eat their food because of a severe kind of epilepsy that affected their development and their brain and so on. So these are, it's a range of different diseases. And so Certainly getting correct information about your type of epilepsy is what we encourage. Get diagnosis of your kind of epilepsy to find out the best treatment for you and, you know, talk with others, learn from others, um, meet other people. So often people with epilepsy say they're alone, that they don't know anyone else. And we try have many opportunities for people with epilepsy to meet others and to learn from others' experience. And always, always sharing your story because that's what makes epilepsy relatable and understandable. And Nathan, when you go into the schools and you're educating kids, talk about some of the experiences that you, you've had in um, teaching them how to care for the brain. One of my greatest experiences is just actually realizing, you know, we go in this with this, this big, huge, inflatable brain, and we simply we break down the lobes. We talk about the four lobes of the brain and their responsibility. And once the kids have a basic understanding, 
that the brain is a muscle and it works for us, just like our feet and our arms and our biceps, our quads. They can see that and grasp that. And I guess what I'm saying is my, my greatest experience with our big brain exhibit and, and teaching kids about epilepsy and seizures is that they do and can understand an otherwise complicated disease. And they do get it. And it's just, and I think we found a great formula here to educate about, like I said, an otherwise complicated and intimidating and scary disease that can happen to their friends. And it's tangible. And it's when I'm doing the presentations and asking the kids questions, looking in their eyes, it's that just split second when they look down at the ground to think about the answer and come back when I ask, you know, oh, what if your classmate has a focal point in their occipital lobe, what's something that could possibly happen, class? And they correctly respond that because the occipital lobe is responsible for our vision, it could potentially um, have their classmate um, not be able to see for a few seconds. And then, of course, my other favorite part and greatest experience with our Big Brain exhibit is doing our dance contest because, you know. Because everybody likes to dance. Because everybody likes to dance, right? It's probably one of the, unarguably one of the, the greatest things our brain can make our bodies do, right? But just doing that and having fun and, and engaging um, these students all across California, and uh, it's just an amazing experience to, you know, obviously as someone with epilepsy who's had it, you know, since I was 18, and I've just been through so many different experiences all across the, the country and the world for that matter, having conversations about epilepsy, still hearing this misinformation, still hearing people come at me with just dated forms of seizure first aid that are not right and never were. It's just really gratifying to be with Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Los Angeles and to have these successful programs and just make it a huge impact. And I see it every day. It just continues to drive me. It's really exciting. So if any of the schools out there want to have this program in how in their schools to teach their kids, how can they go about doing that? Uh, well, they can visit endepilepsy.org, and there is a place where they can uh, request uh, the training. Um, it It is a, a labor of love yeah. to bring the big brain to uh, the schools. We appreciate the welcome that the schools have given because when we ask if we can go in and teach about epilepsy, we aren't as well received, but everyone has a brain. So when we ask if we can teach, you know, about the big brain and caring for the brain, um, it's much more well received, Uh, but it is um, a labor of love and requires many staff to, to bring it to, so it's, we do it as much as we are able, mm-hmm. and we do think that we um, certainly need to find other ways as well to get the message out yes. in a broader way. And Dr. Delgado Escueta, can you talk about why people are oftentimes misdiagnosed? Mm, well, a misdiagnosis in the past and perhaps also presently most commonly is because the seizure type is misclassified and the epilepsy is misclassified. As I was alluding to earlier, in the uh, returning soldiers from Afghanistan and Iraq, 
a major sea change has occurred when we re- recognize the misdiagnosis because patients are brought to us because they have, for instance, uh, a diagnosis of post-traumatic epilepsy and they have a lesion in the MRI from the head trauma and uh, their seizures are uncontrolled in spite of the medications that have been given to them. And then when we record them in the epilepsy monitoring unit, we realize the seizure type is generalized and is the type that is usually genetically predisposed. So these individuals would have never had the expression of that predisposition if they never had that head trauma. So then they get shifted to the drug that is for generalized epilepsies and they become seizure-free. So that happens not only in the uh, veterans population, but also in the civilian population. Very commonly, the myoclonic seizures are mistaken for focal seizures and um, turning of the head to one side during a grand myoclonic seizure is mistaken for a focal uh, lesion of forms of epilepsies and they're put in the wrong drugs. So this is becoming more and more obvious with the precision medicine because uh, we can diagnose these lesions that we had not recognized before. Uh, with the whole genome, whole exome sequencing. And with improved yeah. MRI imaging also. Right. And uh, Yeah, but sometimes that improved MRI image, imaging that tells you it's post-traumatic, when it, when, mm-hmm. so you put them in the wrong drug because you think it's focal epilepsy or partial epilepsy. Turns out, you know, they have generalized epilepsy. This is becoming quite a common observation in the epilepsy monitoring unit. Yeah. And Dr. Patel... There's also misdiagnosed in in children as well because uh, misdiagnosis of learning disorders that may be epilepsy. So... Just to give you an example, I just saw a 12-month-old in my uh, private practice because I'm a child neurologist also. And uh, this was diagnosed as fainting. Grandmother and the mother brought the child to the emergency room uh, at UCLA and they diagnosed the patient with fainting. But when you listen to the grandmother and you listen to the description, the infant was having what you call extensor spasms which are forms of infantile spasms. You know, they needed treatment right away. Unfortunately, they... And that's different so anyway, from epilepsy. short, there are different ways to miss the diagnosis, you know. Right. And uh, you need an epilepsy specialist often to uh, look at the nuances and the details and to listen patiently to the grandmother or the mother who witnessed the seizures. And often, you know, they come with a with the iPhone, with a videotape of the seizures. Oh, wow. You know. That's helpful. So that, that, helps, <laughs> that helps clarify the seizure type and clarifies the, what treatment is needed, yeah. And Dr. Patel, you were talking I, I, about the different part. Um, so it, when you scan the brain, it is and you see a le- uh, what is it, a lesion? How can you tell if that's a stroke versus an ep- epileptic seizure? Or how can you tell what that lesion is caused from? Okay, that, that's a great question. So the MRI is actually just pictures of the brain, as most of you probably know. Um, and so the MRI shows us if there's a, something structural wrong. Um, and depending on the pattern of the images, we can tell whether it is something uh, like a, a growth or a tumor or someone's had a stroke. 
typically uh, on an MRI, you cannot see that someone is having a seizure. Okay, We usually use a test called the electroencephalogram or EEG, which records the brain activity, the, the electrical activity of the brain. And through that test, if we are monitoring the person having the event when the test uh, testing is being done, we can tell whether someone is having a seizure or not. The other thing I wanted to mention um, as well is there are other neurologic conditions that can have symptoms that are similar to seizures, such as shaking and tremors, that sometimes can be um, confusing and take some time to sort out whether it is that the person is having epileptic seizures or if it's something else that's going on that's causing the symptoms. How do you do that? <laughs> um, so the main thing is going, to, is going to be that the neurologist takes a really thorough history and listens to what's been going on to the person at home, uh, you know, whether the events um, last a certain period of time helps us decide, you know, how often are they occurring, are there associated features, for example, um, someone who uh, has had a convulsion or what we call a generalized seizure might have bitten their tongue or lost their urine during these episodes where they um, have lost consciousness. Oftentimes we don't see tongue biting um, with somebody who has a fainting spell, say someone who is prone to, um, you know, uh, not feeling well after they see blood or something gory. When we take the history, it helps guide us as to whether um, one is occurring or the other. And then we use the testing to help guide us further um, in terms of diagnosis. As an athlete, I know that, Nathan, you talked about, you know, you have to be well hydrated, get sleep. Can you guys give me some other ways that we can prevent injuries? If you do have epilepsy, how how can an athlete go out there and give 110% when, you know, they do have epilepsy, but also still maintain, you know, a healthy lifestyle? I'd say the so biggest I, thing an athlete can do is make sure they get sleep and rest. I, I agree. It, it's kind of common sense, just like we would do for anything else, right? So don't push yourself too hard. Um, I think uh, anyone who's training for sports or whatnot understands the importance, as Nathan just mentioned, about taking care of their body in general in terms of sleep, eating well. Those are all the typical things that we should also do, um, you know, if someone has a diagnosis of epilepsy. And uh, we cannot emphasize how important it is to have a well-fitted helmet um, if you are participating in a sport where you might be um, prone to having a head injury. Uh, And I understand that, you know, even in soccer, which is one of the other sports, you know, we're seeing more and more people having um, issues with concussions is that they're teaching kids how to appropriately hit the head the ball Mm -hmm. in in, in, that makes a difference as well. So, you know, I would recommend that anybody who is taking on a sport where this might be something that you uh, might be exposed to, that you take all the precautions um, that you can about learning how to do the activity properly uh, and, of course, wearing the helmet. And Susan, uh, I know that you you were talking about you do a lot of events to promote the awareness. Uh, talk about some other things that we can participate in being Epilepsy Awareness Month. Well, we do have an event, uh, Epilepsy Workshop at the LA Zoo on December 10th. And so we're excited about that. And we'll have some great epilepsy specialists educating uh, individuals and families with epilepsy. Um, we have an active uh, social media program on Facebook and uh, Instagram um, 
and, or, and epilepsy, so people can get involved that way and learn more. Uh, we uh, also have a program for, for example, we've been talking about veterans with epilepsy. We have um, a program that we're capturing each month that can be listened to online. If they go to uh, endepilepsy.org and uh, search under veterans, we have a program for veterans and epilepsy, um, as well as the Epilepsy Center of Excellence that the VA has nationwide, also has videos and training programs that is uh, especially relevant for veterans. So we do a lot to try and promote awareness of the many kinds of epilepsy and the many treatment options that are available because getting to care is so critical and that's why we support the training of new specialists and that's a major initiative we have. We've trained over 20 people in different phases of their training to be epilepsy specialists and uh, getting people to the best care early is critical in epilepsy and can change and improve the the outcome for that person. And uh, if you guys listened to my show before, you know that uh, veterans is very dear to my heart and getting them care is something that I I think our community should hold in uh, high regard. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, if if we can talk about... uh, some of our veterans that you take care of and what they need to look out for just in case they may have some sort of traumatic brain injury. Dr. Delgado Escuelta, can you talk about that? Yes. Uh, The Veterans Administration has long recognized that epilepsy is one of the most common neurologic diseases that veterans suffer from. So as early as in the 1960s, the Veterans Administration pioneered the establishment of epilepsy centers. In fact, the Veterans Administration started the Epilepsy Center and comprehensive epilepsy programs long before the National Institutes of Health. So uh, presently, uh, the United States is divided into regions, and different regions have different epilepsy centers of excellence. So when a uh, returning soldier or veterans uh, has his first seizure. Uh, he has the neurologist, which he can see. And uh, when appropriate uh, issues uh, are brought up and an epilepsy specialist is needed, they are then referred to the Epilepsy Centers of Excellence, which uh, not only uh, have uh, multidisciplinary teams for epilepsy surgery uh, and also for uh, psychiatric management because comorbidity is very important in uh, epilepsy. 40 to 60 percent have uh, neurobehavioral and psychiatric disorders. As you know, one of the real problems we have, uh, very similar to the civilian population but at a higher rate, is that when the veteran has uncontrolled epilepsy, uh, it renders them, makes them prone for suicidality, mm-hmm. suicide and not just for sudden unexpected death. Uh, so there are special programs for that in the Veterans Administration. And the whole panoply of uh, epilepsy surgery, special devices, ketogenic diet as well, uh, are available to the veteran who has drug-resistant epilepsy. Dr. Patel, if you could um, add anything. Um, I think uh, uh, I agree with what uh, what Dr. Delgado Escueta um, described. You know, I, I, 
I just really encourage my patients to be proactive, um, especially when they first come back. It can be overwhelming for the patient and the family to navigate the system, but, you know, just I urge them to make a good connection uh, to get into the VA and to be seen by a neurologist if they're experiencing anything uh, that they think might be a seizure. And hopefully uh, the Epilepsy Centers of Excellence has a wonderful website uh, that veterans can be referred to to watch the basic training video as Susan had mentioned. And so if they are experiencing anything, especially if they have had a traumatic brain injury, that uh, for them to come to see us. Absolutely. And Nathan, if any athletes out there have epilepsy or have just been diagnosed with epilepsy, what would you say to them? And also to the parents that may have a fear of having their child athlete in the game. Well, I just say with consulting with their doctors, I, I would say, you know, if you're healthy enough to participate in sports and you're not putting yourself in danger, do it. By all means, continue to do it. You just got to make sure that you keep your your trigger factors down, get plenty of rest, stay hydrated, and uh, you have all the Thank opportunity to take your medicine. Your medicine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Take your medicine, and, and you have all the opportunity to be a leader in your community and, uh, and for your team and for the parents that, uh, you know, I don't think parents are ever going to stop worrying about their children, but be there for them. Know that it can be tough, and uh, you know, just just think, be there for your kids. Nathan, and I think what Nathan also so is alluding to is, you know, it's a balance. You have to balance epilepsy with other things in your life. What are your dreams and your goals? And so often we hear people with epilepsy say, like, "Don't let epilepsy control you." So it it is a balance. You know, it is important to be compliant on your treatment regimen with your doctor. But at the same time, kids and adults need to go after their dreams and do the things they care about and having a well-rounded, balanced life. People would like some information on what they can do and how they can help. Susan, can you uh, let us know how we can get Well, we mentioned the VA Epilepsy Centers of Excellence, which uh, can be Googled to find the website. We also our organization is at endepilepsy.org, E-N-D-E-P-I-L-E-P-S-Y.org. And then there's also in general information on epilepsy with, at our national office, which is epilepsy.com. And we encourage everyone to be part of the fight to end epilepsy, both for yourself and those you love, and for the public and community at large. Thank you guys so much. We have Susan Peach Escueta. She's executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation Greater Los Angeles. Dr. Jignasa Patel, neurologist and epilepsy expert, assistant professor of neurology at Loma Linda University. Nathan Jones, project director at the Epilepsy Foundation and former athlete. And Dr. Antonio Delgado Escueta, professor of neurology at UC. CLA, co-director of the Epilepsy Center for Excellence and the VA Medical Center in West Los Angeles. Thank you guys so much for sharing your experience and your story and your expertise. Thank you for Thank having us. ESPN LA 710. According to the Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Los Angeles, on their website, endepilepsy.org, epilepsy has long been referred to as a disorder, but disorder implies a functional disturbance that is 
is not necessarily lasting and that minimizes the seriousness of epilepsy. But disease conveys a more lasting derangement of normal function. In 2014, the International League Against Epilepsy and International Bureau of Epilepsy agreed that epilepsy is best considered a disease just as cancer and diabetes are diseases. Thus, epilepsy is a non-contagious disease of the brain defined by anyone with one of these. One, at least two unprovoked seizures occurring less than 24 hours apart. Two, one unprovoked seizure with probability of further seizures. And three, diagnosis of an epilepsy syndrome. If you're newly diagnosed with epilepsy, you may feel confused and concerned. You may even be in denial. That's why the Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Los Angeles can connect you to the information that you need to know and can connect you to the care that you need to have. You know, preparing for your doctor's visit, which is really important. As I mentioned in the interview, my mom wasn't prepared to ask the right questions. You know, we searched for ways to make her more prepared when she was going into treatment. Instead of having a blanketed approach, each individual has to be seen for themselves, just like Dr. Antonio Delgato Escuata said. You can't just have this one approach for everyone that has epilepsy. As the doctor said, you have to figure out what that person is doing. What is their profession? What do they do on a daily basis? How is their family life? And it's putting the pieces together to come up with an accurate diagnosis and accurate treatment. As an athlete, you have to take care of your brain. As a human being, you have to take care of your brain. And Dr. Patel provided some really clear ways that we can do that. And it was really great to listen to the passion of Nathan, a former athlete, playing football with epilepsy and what that meant for him and his friends and how he was able to communicate that. And Susan, she's so passionate about what she does. She's like, hey, get to the website, endepilepsy.org. That's a huge job. And we need to empower those around with accurate information please log on to endepilepsy.org. I'm LaFern Cusack, and this is The Experience. Thank you for sharing your time with me here today. If you want more information, please log on to ESPNLA.com and go to the Experience page and download more podcasts or check me out on Twitter at LaFern Cusack. Thanks again, and see you next week here on ESPN LA 710. ESPN LA 710.